All right, good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, my name is Obed. I'm one of the leaders here. If you are new, as always, thank you so much for dedicating this part of your Sunday to gathering with us. Um, I am confident, not because of me or anyone else, but I am confident because we believe that when God's people gather, God is here in a unique way. Um, and so I'm confident that if you've joined us, um, God will speak to you today, and our prayer is that he would give you ears to hear and a heart that is willing um, to apply all that you hear. Um, If you've got your Bible, turn to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, Um, and this week we are continuing our series um, based on the book of Hebrews, and this week we're in chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at Um, verses 11 to 28. And so I'm going to read, and as I read, follow along with me. But as always, as is our custom, may you please stand for the reading of God's word. Thank you. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through to 28 reads, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and um, goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled it, both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, we, and in, and in, sorry, in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, 
as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your spirit. Thank you that we don't have to rely on our own intellect and our natural abilities to understand all that you want to teach us this morning, that you have provided your Holy Spirit. And so, God, we look to you. We look not only for understanding, but we look to you to empower us to live out all that you call us to do this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. It's been said that Christianity is a bloody religion. This statement, although might sound weird, unoffensive at the start, makes sense because I would say that Christians are obsessed with blood. Christians do talk a lot about blood. Let me give you an example. Some of the most popular Christian songs are all about blood. For example, what can wash away my sins? I've always thought to myself, and every time we're singing that song, and I always think if someone who wasn't familiar with Christianity walked in and heard us talking about blood, the blood of Jesus, I always wonder what they think. When we celebrate communion, what do we do? We describe the bread as the body of Jesus broken for us and the juice or wine as the blood of Jesus shed for us. Christianity is a bloody religion. But Christianity is a bloody religion not because of the blood shed by so-called Christians in wars and inquisitions, but because of the blood shed by our founder and savior, Jesus Christ. In his book titled Precious Blood, Richard Phillips, who's an author, writes, at the very heart of our Christian faith is a precious red substance, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. To read the Bible with any seriousness and sober discernment is to see that the shedding of blood or the implications of it is on practically every page. If the history of redemption is a story told in pictures, the blood of Christ is the paint with which that story is told. And so, have you ever asked yourself what all this talk about blood is all about? 
Like, think about it. Like, what does the term blood of Jesus actually mean? You sing the songs, you're familiar with the concept, but what does it actually mean? The whole idea of the blood of Jesus. Um, I grew up in churches that were obsessed with blood, the blood of Jesus. And every time something went wrong or someone bought a car, they would plead the blood of Jesus on that particular thing. And so what does the blood of Jesus actually mean? There's a literal part um, to the term that truly means that Jesus shed blood when he died. There's a literal part to it. But when Christians talk about the blood of Christ, we frequently um, interpret it in ways that should go much beyond a literal understanding of blood. When we use the term, the blood of Christ, what we mean, or we should mean, is something more symbolic than the actual red stuff. When most of us talk about the blood of Christ, we are talking about the figurative or symbolic meaning rather than the actual physical blood. When we talk about the blood of Christ, we're talking about the act of dying that leads to our redemption. In other words, when we talk about the blood of Christ, we are talking about the death, the sacrificial death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Modern people will cringe at the bloodiness of the cross. Some would say, why would God kill his own son, for example? Some even label it as divine child abuse. One author describes God as a bratty, violent murderer who desperately needed his son's blood in order to save all the rotten humans he accidentally created. While outsiders find the blood-stained cross repulsive, Christians rejoice in what it represents. We rejoice and celebrate the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so why is Christianity a bloody religion? Why are we obsessed with the blood of Jesus? And why is the blood of Jesus so precious to you if you are a Christian? And so this morning, we're going to look at just that. As a Christian, as a Christian, why should you view the blood of Jesus as precious? So the first um, point we're going to look at is that the blood of Jesus is precious because it has secured for us an eternal redemption. It has secured for us an eternal redemption. Last week, we did a brief study of the tabernacle. Okay, um, we discovered that the tabernacle was like this portable worship center for the people of Israel. It was different to the temple. Okay, it came before the temple and it was built built under the leadership of Moses during the wilderness wanderings. And this was a time in the history of Israel when because of rebellion, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And so the Hebrew term we translate as tabernacle refers to the idea of dwelling. 
And so in view of this, the tabernacle, right, was this physical structure identified with God's presence. This means at that time in all of the world, the tabernacle was the home of the God of the universe, and it was the place where God met with his people. You guys remember last week, yeah, if he was here? Yeah? You can talk to me. It's totally fine. Thank you. But when Jesus came, everything changed. Look at verse 11 and 12. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. First of all, we're told that Jesus appeared as a high priest. Okay, um, In Bible times, the high priest was the highest religious authority. He was like the Pope of the Catholic Church. He played a vital role within the Jewish community. His role had two main focuses. Two main focuses, to represent God to the people by teaching them the law and to represent the people before God by making sacrifices for sins. And in the tabernacle was where they represented God's people before God by making sacrifices. And so even though Jesus is identified as a high priest, he was very different to the other high priests in Israel's history. He was high priest of the good things that have come. And so what are the good things that have come? Um, just like other high priests, Jesus was qualified to enter into the tabernacle, into a tabernacle, sorry, but the tabernacle in which he entered is described in verse 11. Look at it as the greater and more perfect tabernacle. And it's described in this way because unlike the tabernacle in the times of the Old Testament, it is not made with hands. It's not a tabernacle designed and constructed by God through people here on earth, but it's a tabernacle created in the heavens by God himself. Look at verse 12 again. He says, Jesus, that is, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So the tabernacle had two main rooms, okay? You remember from last week. Um, the holy place and what? The most holy place. Awesome. You guys are doing well. I need your help. Okay? I need your help. You can speak to me. And the most holy place was where the presence of God dwelt. And only the high priest was allowed to go there. But the most holy place could not be entered just because he was a high priest. Okay? Something else was required. The other thing that made it possible for the high priest to access God's presence was the blood of animals. And so the high priest was able to access God's presence, not just because of his identity, but because of the blood of animals. Again, verse 12, this is what verse 12 wants us to see. Verse 12 wants us to see that Jesus did not only fulfill these requirements, but he fulfilled them in a different and better way. As a high priest, Jesus Christ was was qualified to enter into, the, into God's actual presence, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And because of the person and work of Jesus, because he has ascended into God's presence, okay, verse 12, again, look at it, reminds us that Jesus has secured an eternal redemption 
for everyone everywhere who has trusted in him for salvation. This means that if you are here and you are a Christian, if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus and Jesus is your Lord and Savior, what this is talking about, the idea of an eternal redemption basically means that you cannot lose what Jesus has given to you. You are saved now, and you will be saved from now throughout eternity. And I know in a room of this size, some of you needed to hear this. There has come many times in my life as a Christian whether I have questioned, when I have questioned God's love and God's commitment to me. When I have said to myself, I don't know, man, I think I have blown it. I think what I have actually done has caused God to look at me with disdain. Like, ugh, Obed. There has come a time in your life that you have questioned God's commitment and love for you. Some of you this morning are living with deep anxiety about your eternal security. There is so much more I could say about this, but I think Jesus wants to speak to you now. I love John chapter 10, verse 27 to 30, okay? Let's read that together. It says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus, here, Jesus is sure that his sheep will be safe because the Father is all-powerful in a way that no one else is. Sam Storms, who's an author, says this, the sheep are secure because no one is more powerful than the Father who holds them in his hand. Your redemption, your salvation will be sustained throughout eternity by the God who has saved you. And so we've seen that the blood of Jesus is precious because it has secured an eternal redemption. Next, we'll see that the blood of Jesus is precious because it has delivered us from dead works. Look at verse 13. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a hypha sanctify um, for the purification of the flesh. Stop right there. And so the high priest had many responsibilities, and one of them was to help defiled persons become clean. And a person would become defiled in the Old Testament because of all sorts of reasons, like touching a dead body. Okay? You touch a dead body, you've become defiled. And so, if a person became defiled, what they had to do was go to the priest to get clean. 
again. The priest, what he would do is make them clean by first slaughtering a goat and a bull as a sin offering, as a sacrifice. Then the priest was given a heifer. He would then take the heifer outside the camp and slaughter it. He burned the animal, collected its ashes, and then these ashes were mixed with water and ritually sprinkled on the defiled person, and that is what would make them clean. Michael Kruger, who's an author, a um, scholar, says, explains that the idea behind this kind of purification was that if you washed correctly, put on the right clothes, ate the right things, and performed the right rituals, you could be declared clean. And so, however, the kind of cleansing accomplished through the sacrifice of animals was only useful for the purification of the flesh. In other words, it was limited. And so if these sacrifices were able to only provide external cleansing, look at verse 14. It says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, the author of the Hebrews is like, look, if the blood of ashes, if the blood of animals and the ashes of certain animals was what made people clean on the outside, how much more? will the blood of Christ purify us? The blood of Christ has infinite power to purify us from the inside out. It's the only thing able to cleanse, it says, our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's a powerful statement. The blood of Christ is able to cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There is a deep, glorious forgiveness in Jesus Christ. The death of Christ removes from us the guilt of sin. We now no longer have the weight of our sin condemning us before God. We are free to worship and serve the living God. And so we've seen that the blood of Jesus is precious because it has secured for us an eternal redemption, delivered us from dead works. And, re and next, we'll see how the blood of Jesus is precious because it has redeemed us from transgressions. Look at verse 15. It reads, therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Um, here, Jesus was made the mediator of a new covenant. It tells us by his self-sacrificial sign death, um, the world, you know, we can, the whole idea of a mediator was um, a person um, who became the representative between God and his people. And so because Jesus is a supreme mediator between God and people, verse 15 helps us see that those who are called, those who are called, those who are saved, those who are Christians have received what? The promised eternal inheritance and have also been redeemed from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
And Michael Kruger again helps us. He says, Jesus went not only into the earthly tent, but into the heavenly most holy place. He was not just an earthly priest, but the son of God. And he offered no animals but himself. All of that solved the problem of limitations in the old covenant. And this idea of, sorry, give me a sec, where am I? Oh yes, here I am. Embarrassing. (laughs) (sighs) This verse is incredibly powerful. And I just want to highlight where it just talks about the idea that if you're a Christian, you are redeemed from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Um, there's a lot here, but it all makes sense. And this is why it all makes sense, because there are some things in life that you can only receive when someone dies. Okay, um, in, 2000 and, in 2016, my grandma passed away, and my grandma was like a mom to me, and she just never had a lot. She was just a simple woman, an immigrant to the UK, and just a simple, just didn't have a lot. And I remember reading her will, and like her listing all her children, all her grandchildren, and you know, I looked, you know, I, you know, I was looking forward to what she was going to give me, and I knew she never had much. And She's, what she gave me basically was, you know, I hereby give Obed, my grandson, my Bible and my spiritual books. That's what she gave me. It wasn't a million dollars. But it was her Bible, and I have that to this day. And it, she was an avid reader of God's Word. She's got highlights. She's got underline everything. And that's what she gave me. And I was able to receive that because she had passed away. If you look at verse 16, you'll notice that the author brings up a well-known fact. He says that when someone leaves a will, it's important to establish that the author of the will is actually dead. Why is this important? Verse 17, look at it. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. In other words, a will only becomes valid when the author of the will dies. A will is one of few things in our society that comes to life through death. Look at verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Here, the first covenant refers to the covenant that God made with his people through Moses. And so here in verse 18, the author of Hebrews is emphasizing the connection between the first covenant and death. In the verses that follow, 19 and 20, the author of Hebrews points to a historical event. He talks about how Moses sprinkled both the book of the commandments and the people with blood. Look at verse 21, it says, and in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. In other words, it's basically saying that um, back then um, things were um, purified um, by the sprinkling of blood. And so the blood of Jesus is precious because it secured for us an eternal redemption, delivered us from dead works, redeemed us from our transgressions. And next, we'll see that 
The blood of Jesus is precious because it has given us a hope-filled future. Look at verse 22 and 23. It says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, okay? And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with, um, with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, okay? So here, it's talking about the idea of purification through the shedding of blood. And so what would happen is that the high priest entered into God's presence um, through an earthly tabernacle, but Jesus, the great high priest, has also entered into God's presence, and he has done so through the Holy places made with hands like the tabernacle but Jesus has entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God look at verse 24 it says for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf Verse 25 and 26, let's read it. It says, Now, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to offer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so one of the main duties, right, of the high priest was to enter into the holy most holy place once a year to make sacrifices for their own sins and the sins of the people. And so what Jesus has done is both unlike and like that. Jesus did not enter um, heaven to offer himself as a sacrifice again and again, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus has not only entered into God's heavenly presence on our behalf, but he has also done so once for all. Old Testament sacrifices were symbolic and had to be offered over and over again. Jesus gave his life once as the perfect sacrifice for sin, and it never again needs to be repeated. Look at verse 27. It says, And just as... It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is a well-known verse, okay? Well-known. It's saying... In the same way, each person is destined to die once and after that be judged. Let me stop there and explain something. When you die, you will come face to face with Jesus Christ. That's what this means. In the same way each person is destined to die once and afterwards be judged, Jesus was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take the sins of many people. In light of this, Jesus will come again. And this truth blows my mind every time. 
Jesus Christ. You remember that guy, right? That Jewish carpenter guy who existed thousands of years ago, right? And gained a following by preaching and saying he was God. And then he dies, he gets crucified, and then he rises again and ascends to heaven. That's all true, by the way. That Jesus, that guy, he's coming back again. When is he coming back? I don't know. And I don't think anyone else here knows. Whoever comes up with a date and time where Jesus arrives, look at them and say, no, 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 no. You are wrong. No one knows. But what we do know is that he is coming back. Jesus will come again. And when he comes back, he will not deal with our sins. And listen to this. But he will bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. And so the question I want us to think about is this. Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? Jesus has come and dealt with the punishment penalty of sin, and he will come again to deal with the presence of sin. And so, are you looking forward to Jesus' second coming? How seriously and sincerely do you look forward to Jesus' return? Does it occupy your thinking on a regular basis? I asked myself that question and I was like, no, it doesn't. And I wished it did and I hope it does. Is your heart oriented in anxious expectation of seeing your Savior, Jesus Christ, face to face? Do you wake up each day with the hope that this day might be the day of his return? Or have you become consumed with life here on earth? Have you become so immersed in the affairs of daily life you have become blinded to the beauty of whom who is to come? Have you become so consumed with your possessions and your career, your physical comfort, your relationship, your social media feed, your political party, and all the devices and gadgets and convenience of life that you hardly think about the possibility that at any moment, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, could appear in the heavens. We need more of an eternal perspective. Jonathan Edwards says it this way. He resolved and prayed that eternity would be stamped upon his eyeballs.
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 says, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So much to say about this, but let's move on. And so what does it look like to eagerly wait for the return of Jesus Christ? What does it look like in your life? What should it look like in your life? I would say number one, and Michael Kruger here helps us with it. I would say number one, don't become too comfortable in this world. The more we become content and comfortable in this world, the less we desire eternity. Number two, how do you eagerly cultivate being eager to wait for the return of Jesus Christ? Number two, stir your affections for Jesus. Stir your affections for Jesus. King's Cross Church, this year, let us stir our affections for Jesus. If, you call, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus and if we see him as the treasure and the most valuable person in our lives, we should be doing all we can to stir our affections for him. We will only long for his coming if we long for him. And so this year, may we resolve to encounter the living God through spiritual disciplines, reading scripture, gathering with God's people, praying. And the point of our spiritual disciplines, the point of our Bible reading plans is not to tick a box. And I know that within us, there's this weird tension of, yes, I want to know God, but I want to also be productive, whatever. But let's just pursue all of these spiritual disciplines with the goal of encountering the living God. And that's our hope. And so this morning we've learned about the just precious the blood of Jesus is. And it's precious in so many ways. And so King's Cross Church, may we be a church that celebrates and rejoices in what Jesus Christ has done for us. And as we do, may we rejoice in what all what he provides for us as a result of his blood that was shed for us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for um, these reminders, these brief reminders. God, I pray that you would take everything I've said and everything I wasn't able to say, but God, I pray that this week in our community group, in our own personal times, that everything we've been exposed to, um, you would take it and plant it deeper in our hearts so it bears so much fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.